Hello everyone and welcome back to My Number One, a show where I ask my friends what their number one healer is and then I go try it. Today, I'd like to do a very special crossover episode. Introducing Facing Our Demons, episode three of a deeply soulful, provocative, and inspiring new Street Poets podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And you may recognize my friend Chris Henriksen here as he has been a recurring presence on previous episodes of my number one. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please jump on over and give him a listen. I will have a new episode coming up soon. And it actually happens to be in this very same subject matter. My episode will be on curses, chords, and karma. Well, this episode is about facing your demons. I'll have a link in the bio and please check out the other episodes. They're all amazing. Enjoy. Still stuck on the grind. I got love for the haters who done lost their mind. I got love for the earth, the waters of rebirth. I got love for the fire in my heart when it hurts. I got love for my people, the poet in the streets. I got love for the brother in the cup making beats. I got love for the dancer, the dreamer, the sun. I got love for the killer who gives up his gun. Welcome to the Street Poets Podcast. For 25 years, Street Poets has been building community one rhyme at a time. We share our stories because they connect us to each other and remind us that we're all in this life together. Each episode will bring one of those stories to you. We hope as you listen, you'll hear some reflections of your own story, of the American story, of the greater human story. I'm your host, Arkiros, and this is Facing Our Demons with Jason Kazada and street poet founder, Chris Hendrickson. I've had the incredible privilege of mentoring hundreds of young men in and around the LA County juvenile justice system over the past 25 years. And I've learned something from every one of them. But my relationship with one young man in particular challenged me to grow in ways I never could have imagined in my wildest dreams. What I experienced with him radically altered my perspective on the work we do at Street Poets, on my own sense of identity, and on life in general. This story begins with an original poem by Jason Kazada. Inside me lies a five-year-old boy dying to be free, pleading with the world to just let him be. Stuck in the past, eyes bruised like rotten fruit, extension cord cuts, bullet wounds to his soul. The hospital nurses couldn't make him whole. Heart so battered, can't wait for it to shatter. Life or death, does it really matter? The world tries to make me something I'm not. My mother wants me to be a saint. My homies want me to be a G. My father's ghost is all I see. His 12 gauge pointed straight at me. Sitting here in fear while life passes me by. Trying not to get high because somewhere deep inside lies an evil demon. People catch glimpses, but they can't really see him. He's the one who makes me fall like an eight ball into juvenile hall. He hides, waiting for the right time to take advantage of me 
and anyone else he can see. Thanks to him, I've been able to survive, but I've paid a heavy price for allowing him to remain inside my brain, slowly going insane in search of something beautiful to hold on to beyond my crew that I know is true. I had no way to tell people what I was going through, you know what I mean, what I had been through. So I found poetry to give me that outlet. This random white dude pulled up into the dorm and invited me to a poetry class. And I said, yeah, you know, I'll go. And it was the best two hours of my life. It was a room full of dudes sharing their experiences and sharing where they had came from and just putting that on paper. You know, I had never really done that, articulated how I felt and put that on a piece of paper. And uh, that was life-saving for me. 14-year-old in the, in the barrio, you really don't got much of say-so. But with poetry, I felt that my voice was being heard. It was like taking a breath, you know, like a breath of fresh air. Like I had never taken a breath in my whole life. When Jason joined the writing workshop, I was facilitating at Camp Miller. He was an insecure, hyperactive 14-year-old in a circle of older, tougher, mostly gang-affiliated boys. I'd been teaching there on a weekly basis for about six years, the first three of which had been as a volunteer through the Writers Guild of America. And then to make a long story short, after selling my screenplay and soul to the Hollywood studio system, I realized I was feeling a lot more fulfilled in my volunteer work with incarcerated youth than I was in my paid work with studio executives. So I quit my so-called day job and started Street Poets to provide some place for me and for my students to go when they got released back into the community. The first thing I noticed about Jason was how ultra sensitive he was to others' reactions to what was shared in the space. That's true for most 14 year olds, but it was especially true for him. His eyes were always darting around the circle, checking everyone out, including me. Jason wouldn't share much in the circle at first himself, but he'd always hang around as the workshop was ending and slip me a poem to read or suddenly open up about his childhood in a kind of disarming way. It was during one of those conversations that I realized that his home on the outs was only a block from our new street poet's office in downtown LA. Matter of fact, I discovered later that I could almost see the front door to his mom's apartment from our rooftop. One of the biggest obstacles to doing youth work in LA is how spread out everyone is. So this was a big deal. <laughs> Once I realized that, I was like, this is, one kid we are not going to lose. Plus, Jason had somehow avoided getting sucked into a gang, so the path to high school graduation and college and beyond seemed more open for him than it did for some of my other students. But once he got released, things got more complicated. I was in a real dark place, coming home from camp and uh, doing drugs and a lot of teen drama, tag banging, getting down every other day, getting chased by so-called enemies, uh, riding on walls, just shit happening. I would get these urgent calls from Jason late at night saying, I, I really got to talk to you, man, as soon as possible. And then I'd move my schedule around so I could be at his place first thing in the morning and he'd be gone. He wouldn't answer his door, he wouldn't pick up his phone. 
One time I remember being so frustrated by one of his no-shows that I just let myself into his apartment. It was unlocked and I was calling his name and I swear I could feel his presence. I knew he was there somewhere hiding from me. I would always reach out to him, struggling on the darkness, like, yo, man, like, I need to talk to Chris about this and that. And then when that time came, fear just, just took over me and was like, hell nah, we ain't ready to see that dude. Boom and would head the opposite direction. I never took it personally. On some level, I always knew he was really just running from himself, but I'd be lying if I said there weren't times when I got discouraged or felt like giving up. My lowest moment with Jason came about a week after the funeral of another street poet named Eric Henderson, who'd been shot and killed on his 19th birthday at a bus stop bench near his home in South LA. Eric was just a truly beautiful brother, inside and out, and his death was the most heartbreaking loss I'd ever experienced. And it was also the first death of a core member of our street poets family. It just fucked me up. And then Jason, who had managed miraculously to graduate from high school just weeks before, showed up at the street poet's office unannounced to tell me that he'd been jumped into his gang by some of the older heads in his neighborhood. Honestly, I thought he was joking at first. We're on the roof of the old street poet office. I remember it was getting a little dark. It was getting a little cold up there. Telling Chris was almost like saying it to someone aloud, saying and repeating in my head was also reminding me of the choice I had made. I was just like, damn, like this is, this is real. You know, and like, I'm probably not gonna see you anymore because uh, of where I'm going. I knew I was heading to it. A dark place. I didn't know how dark, but I I just, like, I knew I was going into a dark place. And I felt like, because Chris had always been there for me and helped me do so much things, helped me graduate from high school, just helped me come so far after being in such a bad place, too. I felt like I owed him that, you know, like, yo, man, like, if you don't see me, it's because it is. You don't have to wonder why or this is, like, this is just what it is. There was a part of me like a Mr. Fix-It that was constantly trying to help young people patch the holes in their boats, trying to connect them to jobs, counseling, donated cars, and other resources. Anytime a leak would spring up, I would do my best to help keep them afloat, and I'd gotten pretty good at patching holes, but I was also becoming very aware of the limitations of that approach and how stretched thin I was feeling in that role. And I'd even begun to wonder if assuming that kind of responsibility for others was a good idea in the first place. So when Eric was murdered, it was like a hurricane just completely wiped out his boat. But when Jason joined a gang, it was almost harder for me to accept because it felt self-inflicted, like he capsized his boat on purpose. This boat that we'd been working on together for years. I felt like a total failure in that moment, and it made me question everything. Then out of the blue, I got this invitation in the mail to a men's retreat in the Redwoods of Mendocino, to which I said yes without even thinking. I knew I needed to get away, and the facilitator's bios intrigued me. 
They included a mythologist and storyteller named Michael Mead, a tribal elder from Burkina Faso named Maladoma Somme, Jack Cornfield, who was a pretty well-known meditation teacher and a former Buddhist monk. And there was also a spiritual teacher and youth mentor from Guyana named Orlin Bishop. The only one I'd actually met before was writer Louis Rodriguez, whose poems and redemptive memoir, Always Running, about his early years as an LA gang member, were great sources of inspiration for me and for many of the youth with whom I was working at that time. Anyway, I figured at the very least the retreat would be a good escape. But it turned out to be the exact opposite of that. There were about a hundred of us out in the Redwoods, these men from age 16 to 80, and all different backgrounds and generations coming together and singing these beautiful indigenous songs from all over the world and engaging in these incredible rituals that engaged the natural world in a way that I'd never experienced before. cried so hard for so long in my life. It was like a water main broke somewhere deep inside me and an ocean of grief just poured out. And at first it was incredibly excruciating and I felt like my whole body and being was being torn apart. And then the tears just kept coming. And at first I was mourning Eric and Jason and all the other tragic shit I'd seen in and around the juvenile justice system, then I didn't even know what the tears were about. At some point, I stopped fighting and surrendered, and it almost felt like I was floating on a river of tears that was carrying me home. It was one of the most excruciating and ultimately beautiful experiences of my life. Something about the grief the way it opened me up and cleared me out made me really receptive to everything that was being offered in that space. And let's just say that I had a very different perspective on things when I got home. <laughs> I remember I was going to see Chris because I hadn't seen him in a while. We were at El Cholo and we walked in and, you know, we sat in the back and the, cut, and the room, the setting was a little dark, bro. El Cholo is an old Mexican restaurant in LA with a lot of history, and it's right near the street poet's office. Jason and I had eaten there before, but not under these circumstances. I'd made this lunch date with him via text on my drive back from Mendocino. Something just told me that it was important that I see him. I knew I was different, and I think part of me was curious to see if Jason would notice any change in me. The old Mr. Fixit that he was used to seeing had been ritually mourned and buried at the base of a redwood tree in Mendocino. And I wasn't sure how recognizable the rest of me would be to him. I remember that we both ordered the blue corn chicken enchiladas. And as the waitress stepped away from the table, I saw something strange that I hadn't seen before. A dark, translucent mist snaking its way from Jason's belly up through his chest. And then it curled out and back into his neck before rising up into his face, which immediately clouded over. 
His eyes turned cold. He sneered and kind of laughed for no apparent reason. And I just said, what was that? Out loud, without thinking, pointing at the spot on his neck where I saw the snake emerge. And he replied, you can see that? I still get chills thinking about that moment. Yeah, I can see that, I answered. And then Jason averted his eyes and then looked back at me and said, he wants to talk to you. When I was a kid, there's a lot of traumatic experiences that I went through. You can't really experience that as a kid because it's too much. So you kind of check out. And in that process of checking out, other things check in. It was always kind of like, a, nah, man, that's just like a bad voice in my head. Like, wanted me to make a bad choice. But I kind of felt like, nah, like that shit was a part of me. It wasn't just some Jiminy Cricket saying do something bad. I felt like there was something in me that wanted to do something bad. That's when my heart started going ba-bump, like a ranchero bass line out the back of a pickup truck. I was definitely unnerved, but I was somehow able to maintain my composure. I think part of the reason for that was that it wasn't the first time that I'd seen something like that. Shortly before I left for the Redwoods, I'd had an experience with another one of my mentees during a deep, heartfelt conversation about his abusive father on the roof of our office when his face had morphed into something undeniably reptilian and his head had begun to sway back and forth like a cobra's as water just streamed from his eyes. And what had started as a clear, coherent conversation about his father became like this completely random, incoherent babble. And it occurred to me at the time that he might be experiencing what a psychiatrist would call a psychotic break. But I wasn't trained as a mental health professional, so I used my poetry teacher mentor instincts, which told me not to back away in fear or judgment, but to stay really present with this young person that was obviously in a lot of distress. And over the course of about 10 minutes, he gradually shed his reptilian countenance and returned to himself. So I wasn't completely blindsided in that moment at the restaurant when Jason, well, yeah, when Jason changed. (laughs) Okay, let's talk, I think I said to Jason, or more accurately to the whatever that snake-like mist was behind his eyes. And then, just like that, Jason was gone, and I was staring into the flushed, sneering face of something or someone that felt both oddly familiar and wholly alien to me. And it said, you're wasting your time. He's mine. He's always been mine, in a voice that was deeper and more guttural than Jason's. And I asked him, who he was and if he had a name. And he said, names can be used against you. And I made some snide remark like, I'll just call you Mr. No Name then. And then he said to me, you have no idea what you're dealing with. And of course, he was right. I was walking in totally uncharted territory on the very edge of what I'd always understood to be true. Nothing I'd learned at prep school or Duke University or the American Film Institute's MFA program had prepared me for a conversation like this. And so I decided to put my old journalist hat on to try to gather all the information that I could. 
So then I asked, how long have you and Jason been together? And he said, forever. And I challenged him on that. And he said, it might as well be. And then I was like, since he was a little kid? And he said, since way before you came around. Then I asked him, so if you're so powerful, how can you pick on little boys? Why don't you pick on someone your own size? And then I remember him saying, in time, the cub becomes a lion in this weird, sinister, self-satisfied way. <laughs> and it just triggered something in me. And I said, Jesus loves you out of nowhere. I don't even know where it came from. Honestly, it felt a little bit like if you were in a boxing ring with someone for the first time, throwing a probing jab just to let him know you're, you're there and to keep his distance. And I regretted the words immediately. And he just turned on me and said, you really think that's going to work on me? You don't even believe that shit yourself. And suddenly for the first time, I felt vulnerable as if maybe by trying on someone else's faith or by not having enough faith in my own heart, I had somehow dropped my guard. And he said, you're in way over your head. But as I was absorbing his words, I realized I wasn't the only one for whom that was true. Behind all his proprietary bluster, this being felt threatened by my love for Jason. I could sense its fear as clearly as it could sense mine. And I realized it was the one that initiated the conversation in the first place. It felt compelled to speak up and claim Jason as its own. And if it hadn't felt threatened, it never would have stepped forward like that. So I remember thinking, it's the one on the ropes, not me. And then as suddenly as I had that thought, it just drained from Jason's face and Jason came back. Where I was at in that place in time, the entity was more on the surface at times, you know, like I, because of how I was moving in the streets and what I was doing and the kind of life I was living, I kind of gave up the reins to who I am and to who I was to this thing. I really showed up with Chris because I wanted to be seen or I wanted some freedom and Chris reminded me of who I really was, but also because this thing wanted to be seen too. I do remember like I blanked out for a bit. He was nauseous and disoriented and didn't remember anything of the conversation that I just had. And it was like, I feel sick, CH, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw up. And, and so I paid the bill in a hurry and got him outside onto the sidewalk. And he was gagging into a bush out there. And I was encouraging him to breathe in the sunlight. And I had my hand resting on his back. And as I was standing there with him, I just realized, man, I can't, I can't drop him at home, back in the hood, in this state. I felt a little bit like a door had been kicked open and my foot was jammed in the threshold. And if this was an opportunity, it might not arise again. And so I needed to get him out of the city to a place where the environment would be working with me, not against me. And having just been in Mendocino in these redwoods, I knew how powerful nature and the natural world could be. So instead of turning east on the 10 freeway to take him home, I swung the wheel west and headed toward the ocean. When Jason and I got to the beach, it was a beautiful summer afternoon in Santa Monica. We walked down the sand and picked a good uncrowded spot at which to chill for a while. And we both just kind of kicked back and watched the waves roll in. Uh, we went to the beach, you know, like, all right, come on. And uh, we're doing this water ritual. Well, I didn't know it was a water ritual at first. 
It was low key like a setup. I just want to say that on a scale of one to ten, with ten being divinely inspired and one being completely nuts, I'd like to think I was operating at at least a six that day. I do know that I felt like I was being guided by something beyond myself, and that on a more conscious level, I was drawing on some of what I'd experienced in Mendocino. I feel like spirit, creator, whatever, the Holy Spirit, whatever, um, his spirit guys, whatever, Chris is pulls from the magic that Chris pulls from um, just came over and he started talking and I still didn't, uh, I remember this clearly because looking at him at the beach, he was there and Chris, but I, there was something that wasn't Chris there. And it was a good thing. After that surreal lunch experience, I think we were both in a somewhat altered state of consciousness. My intention was to open up a doorway to healing and change for this kid I loved who I didn't want to lose to the streets or prison. And I knew that as long as he was rolling with whatever that was I'd spoken with over lunch, he didn't stand much of a chance. I was just trying to bring him into relationship with something big enough and strong enough to support his healing if he could surrender to the ritual that was forming in my mind. And so I started gathering rocks and arranging them into a circle along the shoreline. And I invited Jason to join me, which he did. And we just worked on it together, almost like two Tibetan monks making one of those mandalas. I was just trying to create something beautiful and circular that could serve as a kind of symbolic womb with a rebirth canal opening to the ocean. Chris put these uh, trees, got these like big ass limbs and put them together like so he could make this gateway. Uh, uh, but I mean gateway, like literally a door, you know, what, what looked to me to a door or to what I perceived to be a door. That was around the time the sun began to set. And as darkness fell hard, Jason turned to me and asked if we were planning to stay there all night. And that's when I told him, we still had some work left to do, healing work. And he got really quiet. So I started waxing poetic about the ocean and her ability to cleanse a person and about how she can take anything you give her and more. And the words just kind of poured out of me and I found myself speaking with more authority than I probably had any right to feel at that time. But it honestly felt like the words were coming from a good source, and all I had to do was get out of the way to let them through. I remember him just having like this, like this shimmer, bro, and even his eyes looked different. I remember I was like a shot of adrenaline, but a fear, bro, ran through my body, and was like, "No fucking way, dog!" Like, no. He kind of freaked out at first, like, "Oh hell no!" But then I remember his energy downshifted. And he told me he was scared in this very raw, very real, truthful voice that reminded me of the same vulnerability that first caught my attention when he used to pull me aside after writing workshops at Camp Miller. I told him it would be weird if he wasn't scared and the change was scary, but that in my experience, opportunities like this to choose change for yourself don't come along very often. And slowly, after a couple of false starts, I was able to corral him and all that he was carrying into that rock circle, that womb. I just gave him instructions, basically. I was like, dive into the first wave, 
Take a deep breath, blow hard out of your mouth everything you want to release as the second wave washes over you. And on the third wave, just open your heart and surrender to the water and let the spirit of the ocean take anything doesn't, that doesn't belong with you anymore. Jason crawled through the gateway and started duck-footing it down toward the shoreline in his jeans and t-shirt. And I just followed him into the dark, frigid water. And as the shadow of a wave emerged from the darkness, I turned to Jason. This is it, Jason, remember, head first. But instead of diving, Jason leapt toward the black starlit sky as the wave struck him at his neck. And he sprinted out of the water, back up onto the sand. And when I finally caught up to him there, he was in this state, his hands were scouring his body, almost like a a man who had just been sprayed with a shotgun blast might, who couldn't believe that he wasn't bleeding. His voice was like, I'm still here, I'm still here. And I remember being like, come on, Jason, you can do this, you can get back in the water. He was like, hell no, I ain't no chump. And I remember that so well because I'd never heard him use the word chump before. In fact, I'd never heard anyone use that sort of old school term uh, in our street poet circles. And that's when I realized that it wasn't really Jason I was talking to anymore. I just wasn't ready for that. The entity in me wasn't ready for that either. You know, they're like, oh, hold on, go home. Ain't nobody going home. We were just trying to say what's up, you know? (laughs) And uh, so it it was a little... It was definitely like a little uh, different. I remember feeling like a little shook because it felt so real. Something there was so fucking real. I knew on the other side of that, on that water, my higher self knew there was something life-changing for me there. But there was something in me that wasn't going to let me get that that day, that night, at all costs. I was like not having it. Like, Chris, let's get the fuck in the car. It became really clear really fast that the doorway to healing and transformation was closed for the night. And as we walked back toward the parking lot in silence, I felt this incredible bone-deep weariness come over me. Whatever source I had been plugged into just got unplugged. (laughs) And my human body was just like, what the fuck just happened? It felt like I'd just been run over by a truck. And... We just drove downtown silently in my car and I dropped Jason dripping wet on the doorstep of his apartment building in the hood and then just banged a U-turn and headed for home. That ritual was like a a ray of hope, but also it pissed pissed something in me off. Like, man, we ain't ready for all that. But it also, there was something in me that got sparked that day. Just because of my background, I could always bring it back to what I know, like in the Christian world, that's like a baptism. But I kind of knew in that water there was a there was a new life that could be had. That for me was uh, was scary at the time, but it was also like relief a relief to know that there was something there. As I drove along the ten freeway back to Santa Monica, where I lived, one truth became really clear to me amidst all my other swirling thoughts, and that was if I'm going to be able to help Jason and others like him. If I'm going to be able to go where I'm feeling called to go, I'm going to need some new mentors.
Damn, Chris. I can only imagine how tripped out you must have felt after that. Even for those of us getting this story secondhand, it's a lot to take in. Where did you go from there? I went in search of people who didn't look at me like they thought I was crazy when I told them what I'd been seeing. And I went in search of tools that I hoped would help Jason and others to heal. One of the most important mentors for me early on was Maladoma Somme, who I'd met in Mendocino. Maladoma was an initiated elder from the Dagra tribe in Burkina Faso, but at that time he was living in Eugene, Oregon. And I was part of a group of about a dozen people who spent a couple of years over long weekends with him studying and practicing what he likes to call indigenous African spiritual technologies. When I shared with Maladoma what I'd been seeing and experiencing with Jason, he told me, if you can see it, you're meant to work with it, which was something I really needed to hear at that time. I'd been working in predominantly brown and black communities for years, so I was aware of sensitivities around issues of cultural appropriation. And I honestly wasn't sure at first if someone of Northern European descent like me belonged in some of the spaces I was being called into. But at that time, those spaces held by indigenous elders were the only ones where I felt truly seen. It was like I was staring out through a doorway that I hadn't even known was there into some other dimension that was both alluring and a little scary to me. Imagine looking out at the ocean for the first time if you've never seen water before and you don't know how to swim or even if trying to learn would be a good idea. As an overeducated, baptized and confirmed New England Protestant, part of me was conditioned not to go there but a much deeper part of me felt called to that healing work, like a fish to water. After that night at the beach, that part of me that ran away from the water just kind of took my life down, you know, was spiraled all the way down. I got deeper into addiction, deeper into gang culture. My life got really dark really fast, and eventually I ended up in county jail. I also started digging into books that became doorways of their own that led me to other doors and other teachers and techniques. I was looking for anything I could find to help Jason and other street poets break these self-destructive cycles. Early on, I remember reading a book by a Yale-trained psychologist named Scott Peck called Glimpses of the Devil about his work with a Catholic exorcist. I recognized some of the same symptoms the exorcist described as signs of what he called demonic possession in his clients and a few of my mentees, but I found the description of the actual exorcisms to be profoundly disturbing. It framed the work like warfare between good and evil, and that didn't resonate with the healer in me at all. In fact, it turned my stomach. And then I picked up a book called Shaman Healer Sage by a Cuban-American anthropologist turned shaman named Alberto Violdo that used language that I found much less alienating from the Peruvian Caro Indian tradition in which he was trained. What he called extraction work wasn't about casting out demons, but relocating intrusive entities or energies from their host body back to the natural world without judgment. 
this approach felt much more natural to me. So I began studying those energy healing techniques and spent three years walking their medicine wheel all while I was continuing to work with Maladoma. Eventually, I was able to clear the way for Jason and a number of other Street Poets alums and staff to begin doing some trainings and community ritual with Maladoma up in Ojai. And we also were blessed to connect to a sweat lodge community with ties to the Lakota reservation that became a powerful healing resource for many of us. If I remember correctly, Art, we watched you go through a naming ceremony with Curtis, a Dakota elder around that time. Yeah, and I remember what Curtis said about why he was choosing to do these ceremonies with non-Native people. He said that he wanted to make sure that the medicine would survive and that fewer and fewer Native youth where he lived were interested in learning their traditional ways. I saw that same story playing out in Maladoma's village in Burkina Faso, where more and more of the youth there were following their cell phones to the big city rather than their elders into initiation. Maladoma was actually sent by his own elders to the West, into the belly of the beast, to do what he could to transform it from within because they recognized they were losing the battle to preserve their culture on the home front. The name Maladoma actually translates to English as friends with the stranger or friends with the enemy. Jason, what do you remember about your early healing sessions with Chris after you got out of jail? If you've ever been listening to Chris come out with a little rattle, you know, start moving energy. And that's the first thing you're like, damn, oh man, stuff you, at least for me, I can start feeling stuff moving inside of me. You know, I'm like, oh man. Sometimes I feel like I was conscious of it. And then sometimes I felt like, like I would just black out and then wake up and be like, yo, what the fuck happened? And I just remember like every session, I felt a little bit lighter. This one session where I just, you know, I was holding on to some stuff, you know. I wasn't sure that I could live without that stuff. Maybe because I identified so much with it or I was tied so into it, to my pain and through my wounds. Because I had carried it for so long as a kid and like I really thought it was part of me. Those sessions were the catalyst, the beginning of my new life. Because I had been up in so much shit and caught up in so much shit, I couldn't even really get or access my life, who I'm meant to be, or my calling, or my gift, until I addressed all these issues. That gift, that calling, like your life's purpose, it's it's there. It's always been there for me. But none of that was accessible until we got down to business with everything in between. At first, it seemed like my life was getting worse. But it really was just like all the bad shit that I didn't need in my life just kind of like... And because I was so entangled with that, with that lifestyle... I saw it as like, oh man, my life's fucking falling apart. But really, my life was just barely coming together. When I was 16, in the world of hurt, I'd wait for divine intervention, a thunderbolt from heaven to save me. But it never came. Left to drown in a pool of pain, I was introduced to the game. A little boy is playing on crack cocaine, zipping on night train, waiting for his daddy to return. That never happened. So I'd wake up every day, determined to run away. From there, from here, from fear. I'd escape for days into hellish haze, struggling to get this ape off my back. I picked up a strap and let it off on the world. 
Hoping they, you, would feel my pain too. Pass like the flu from the hole in my heart to yours. A violent virus with no name. Until I came back to my senses, to myself, to get help. In search of a cure for a cancer carried for too long. A freedom song rising from my wounds. Inspiring me to start healing. Feeling my way home. One hard, sweet tear at a time. Besides the specific healing techniques, Chris, what's the main thing you've learned from the elders you've worked with? Humility, for sure. And surrender, too. As Westerners, our minds have been conditioned in ways that make it difficult, if not impossible, for us to receive and integrate much of what indigenous spiritual traditions have to offer. But luckily, there are practices out there designed to open us up and make us more receptive that return us to the earth, sometimes literally. I'm thinking of burial rituals and sweat lodge and vision fasts out alone in nature. These are all practices that shifted my relationship to the natural world and to what I once thought of as myself. The elders I know have chosen to work with Westerners of all races and cultural backgrounds because they understand that we're the problem. And if we don't change our ways, we're all screwed. The global environmental crisis affects everyone. My ancestors came to me between the seams of sweat lodge dreams with a request for healing. Hearts muffled and torn by dead silence, born from horrors too big to face, seeking grace on sacred ground, paved with false promises. My ancestors came to me to claim responsibility for the rape and enslavement of millions, of one, your son, who was once elder, chief, healer of a tribe that knew nature and beauty like the river knows tears. My ancestors' fears fed flames that consumed original names and songs, turned ancient healing rites to wrongs, harnessed hell for prophets that today build prisons to contain that same shame under different names. Has your exposure to these healing traditions changed your perspective on the criminal justice system at all? Well, it's definitely given me new eyes. There are ways of perceiving these fear-based, low-vibration, protective, predatory energies like the one I encountered in Jason as players in a kind of matrix that allows them to continue to feed off each other while keeping their individual hosts stuck and perpetuating cycles of violence and abuse. From where I sit, these are serious obstacles to change, especially within hierarchical systems like gangs or the military or law enforcement. For example, I've met gang unit cops who carry the same predatory energies as the gang members they're policing, which makes sense if you think about it. Individuals who are drawn to signing up for a aggressive kick-ass style of law enforcement often have a history of trauma in their own childhood. They're motivated by a strong desire to get the bad guy 
who may have first shown up in their lives as an abusive alcoholic stepfather or a molesting uncle. If those early wounds are left untended and unhealed, it makes them vulnerable to absorbing exactly the kind of predatory energies that their gang counterparts are carrying. There's been plenty of press in recent years about groups of cops within law enforcement that behave just like gangs. They even have their own tattoos and initiation practices. These rogue units are an example of how these energies like to organize themselves. The more violence, fear, and trauma those officers and gang members are exposed to, the more entrenched the protective predatory energies in them become. In fact, the energies act like magnets, drawing toward the individual exactly the kind of violent conflict they would consciously rather avoid. There are good reasons that many native tribes traditionally wouldn't let a warrior returning from battle see his family until he had been through a sweat lodge or other purification practices to help him come back to himself and return home to the village in a good way. These are practices we've forgotten, denied, or violently suppressed in the Western world, and I think we're still paying the price for that. Not to get too political here, but many destructive, unsustainable systems, including certain predatory capitalist economic practices, have been enshrined as a result of that ignorance. Jason, after all the ups and downs you've been through over the past 15 years, what does your life look like now? It's a good life, man. You know, I, I wake up almost every day, 435, bro, and I build, I build homes and all sorts of beautiful stuff for people. And right now I employ six dudes plus myself. Sometimes other folks want to bring in people from other crews. It's beautiful work. I got two beautiful kids, Abigail and, and Elijah. My life right now consists of helping them become the best version of themselves, being a daddy to them first. And like that shit brings me so much joy, bro. I remember years ago, sometimes I couldn't even really even feel that joy. I didn't know how to get back to my heart. Like, bro, I I really didn't. Like, I saw myself dying in the streets or in prison. I've been pretty close to both those. But, like, now when I hold my kids and we just do shit, it's like, damn, my life has come together. And how it's pulled up the way it is, it's nothing short of a miracle, dog. It's hard for me to imagine who I'd be if I'd never met Jason. Consciously or not, he was the catalyst for so much healing and growth in my life and in the life of street poets. My relationship with him not only inspired me to change, it made that change necessary. If our paths hadn't crossed, I'm honestly not sure I'd be here right now. And those indigenous healing practices saved me in more ways than one while helping our street poets community evolve and sustain itself over the past 25 plus years.
Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Street Poets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. Metaphors be with you.